Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 191 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday night, January 12th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It is only Tuesday. <laughs> Feels like a, a year of Mondays, actually. Uh, it's been a few days since our last uh, emergency pod, Steve. We, we did episode 190 on the night of the day of the living infamy, the uh, the insurrection that uh, flooded across and rampaged through the Capitol. And tonight we're back uh, really to talk about the same thing and some further developments perhaps, but nothing too different from what we already talked about. We're not going to address, I don't think, really anything else, are we? Um, I mean, maybe we'll, we'll spare a quick word for swaggering Mikey P., uh, the Secretary of State, who decided to pick today to declare that Iran was partly responsible for the 9-11 attacks, which I thought was you know, a nice, a nice outgoing parting gift from the, the soon-to-be former Secretary of State. So I was not aware of that. You're going to have to fill me in, but that sounds like something we definitely should talk about. I'd like to know more about what he said. And That's basically what he said. Well, my immediate reaction is that there's – well, <laughs> look, let's save that until we get to it. But I think we should talk about that because I think that has some implications about sort of what we should spend some time doing, which is anticipating some sort of worst-case scenarios over things going south in the next – a few days, or the next eight days to be more specific. Not so, even. Uh, seven days, as, we, as we're sitting here, seven days, uh, what? 14 hours and 23 hours. minutes. Uh, many a slip betwixt cup and lip, and that's a long time between now and then. So one, one, would, one would think we ought not to have Trump in charge for those remaining seven days, 14 hours and change. Well, why don't, why don't we start there? So uh, it, I... I think we don't need to spend time talking about the 25th Amendment. Mike Pence has made clear in writing that he is not going to do that. Let's move right. along. Ixnay on the on the 25th Amendment day. <laughs> should, should you say 25th or is it uh, – I can't even do it. I was going to break it up between the two. Let's focus, 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 uh, the impeachment article. Um Let's talk a little bit more about the impeachment article itself. It, it's the uh, it's premised on incitement to insurrection. Uh, do you think it should include other grounds? Does, does it adequately specify that ground? Um, is it so, all just a question of we just need to trust that people are having back channel conversations, trying to find the uh, lowest common denominator that gets the most votes? So I, ha- I have a number of thoughts, and they've been um, helpfully um, sorted by the House Judiciary Committee's release of its report this afternoon, um, which is a much more Bobby Thorough document um, outlining the factual predicate for the for the charge. Right, that the charge sort of the the charge got out before the backing report did, and I think the backing report helps a lot. That's um, and, and am I right in thinking that since we're not talking about the criminal law context? It doesn't really actually matter in any kind of formal sense that there are specifications in the report that aren't that aren't named as such in the charging instrument. That's right. I think it's more just that the the report is filling in a lot of the details that I mean, as you already have implied, as others have noted, the actual article of impeachment is pretty thin. Um, but I think I, I, I my view is that that was incredibly deliberate. Um, that, as you say, lowest common denominator, I mean, an effort to keep as many people on side as possible. There's nothing in there, Bobby, for example, about the president's phone call with Secretary of State Raffensperger, which, you know, to my mind is actually an independently impeachable offense. But 
you know, yeah, they're clearly I mean, focused only on Wednesday. And, yeah, and, and I, I, think, I just want to footnote that real quick, that uh, by articulating at the highest level of formality, the offense warranting impeachment as incitement to insurrection, that's a huge deal. And it's, it's obviously highly relevant here. Um, some people have picked on that saying like, well, actually, like, is that, that seems to put a lot of weight on something where you could start then getting really picky about, and, and I think kind of rightly so, get picky about, well, where does the First Amendment tradition about speech enter into that, blah, blah, blah. Why aren't we talking instead about the separate and distinct, and to my mind, more at least equally weighty situation, which is what we have is a increasingly direct and intentional effort to uh, to defraud the American public about the election itself. In other words, imagine that the uh, lunatics who rampaged, the, the people who terrorized and engaged in terrorism inside the Capitol, imagine that didn't happen. The rally went over there, they yelled, they went away. Um, but but you have all the rest of it. The president constantly lying, lying with, I shall underscore, increasing uh outrageousness. You know, it's no longer just like, well, who knows, but there was fraud, but now it's, it was a landslide and I won by a landslide and it gets increasingly cartoonish. So you could have a separate count of attacking democracy itself by, by trying to achieve a coup through persuasion in effect, separate from inciting the particular instance of armed force that did take place. So, um, that was a long footnote, but then again, I'm a law professor. So our footnotes do tend to be long, uh, back to you, Steve. Well, I just, I mean, so I think, I think there's a lot more that could have been said. I think the problem is that there's, you know, a tight timeline. Um, they're trying to get some Republicans on board. Bobby, already, as we're recording, four House Republicans, including Liz Cheney. Man, she um, came out strong. Right. She has have, a I mean, very impressive statement. Right. I mean, keep, keep in mind that the first impeachment of Trump was almost purely partisan, right? That no Republicans joined the impeachment vote in the House. Only Senator Romney, right, voted to convict right. from the Republican caucus. So in the, in the House the last time, Leader McCarthy had exercised you know, the power of the caucus to attempt to forbid and more or less successfully forbid uh, anyone from defecting and, and supporting it. And he has said he is not imposing any such limitation this time. The there's an implication there. It's a little face saving for those who uh, don't want to come right out and support it, I suppose. But he is giving the right to defect. I, I will still say, I mean, so so I am I am heartened by Liz Cheney's statement. I am heartened that there are already four, and I suspect by tomorrow, probably a dozen or so House Republicans who are on board with this. Um, I am not ready yet to exculpate these folks for how we got here, but at least they're out in front of this now. And yeah, there's there's a lot of dialogue out there that is, every time someone says, you know, hey, wow, great job, Liz Cheney. People are like, oh, but where were you then? Y'all, now we can have the recriminations. And language. we will. And, and, I, and so I guess consider this me saying just without prejudice to coming back later and saying we only got here because people like Liz Cheney and people like, you know, Chip Roy and whatever. I mean, like, like right, like, I just, I think right now the house is on fire, right? We'll worry about the cause of the fire later. I agree. And, I, and I'll just say, I think we agree. It is not helpful to putting out the fire on this house when people are doing the right thing and taking principled stands for someone to then try to shift the conversation back and say, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about how bad they screwed up later. Man, say, save that for eight days from now. Right. Now, on the flip side, the Republicans who are complaining about all of this, 
um, and saying that what we re- what, and saying that what we need right now is unity and healing. No, um, I know it's it's. The, I mean, my biggest problem with those people is those are the same folks who still won't admit that they've been lying about the election for two months, and they still won't admit that it was a legitimate, fair election that Biden won free and clear. So, you know, let's start with that, and then you can start lecturing me about unifying the country. I think that, uh, yeah, I think that anyone anyone who's supporting the the fraudulent narrative about uh, election fraud, fraud about fraud, um, needs to not be speaking up at all. It needs to be looking in the mirror and asking, is that really how they want to be remembered? historically. All right. Um, so while we're still on the impeachment, so so I, I think it is now a virtual certainty that, you know, by, I don't know, next Monday at the latest, the House will impeach President Trump for the second time. He will become the first person ever to be impeached twice. There's a there's an honor to put in the in the go. on the presidential library. Right. Um, and, and so then the next step in the process is a trial in the Senate, which of course can't possibly be completed before the inauguration, which leads to an issue that we should talk about. Yes. And so um, there's not been in the Washington Post today, um, and there's a lot of noise being made by some conservative commentators to the extent that, to the effect that um, impeachments are unconstitutional once you are out of office, that the Constitution does not allow for the exercise of the impeachment power against an officer after they've either resigned or their term has ended. Um, Hugh Hewitt was peddling this crap this morning, um, but it's now received a bit more heft in the form of an op-ed by a former Fourth Circuit judge, J. Michael Luddig, um, who you know has a fair amount of credibility in the conservative legal community, but who on this, Bobby, I'm just going to say, is just dead wrong. He's wrong as a matter of text, he's wrong as a matter of structure, and he's wrong as a matter of historical practice and common sense. Other than that, it's a perfectly good argument. Well, it's, uh, that I, I agree with you that he's wrong. Let's talk about why he's wrong. Yes. Let's get, let's so, get to the text. Let's start. Right, so so um, Luddick bases a lot of his argument on the text of Article 2, which refers to the impeachment of particular officers, the president of the United States, the vice president, and other officers of the United States. And the linchpin of his argument is that, obviously, if you are no longer an officer, you cannot be impeached. Um Here is the central textual and structural problem with that argument before we get to historical practice and common sense. Um, Article 2, Section 3, I think it is, is not the Constitution's only reference to impeachment. Um, Sorry, Article 2, Section 2 is not the Constitution's only reference to impeachment or is it 2-4? Article 2 is not the only reference. Article 1, Section 3, um, in talking about the powers of the Senate, also talks about impeachment. And Bobby talks not just about the Senate's power to remove officers who have been found guilty on concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. It also talks about the Senate's power to disqualify said officers from holding federal office in the future. Exactly. The, so. yeah. You know, for, for a textualist and originalist like uh, Ludig to uh, not give due weight to this, I think it was a pretty big mistake. Here's the language. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. In in other words, this language is trying to make clear that the conviction of someone who is impeached doesn't mean you can send them to jail. This isn't a criminal process. But it's, it's beyond cavil that there's more than just removal from office here. And the permanent disqualification of the convicted impeached official 
is a lasting impact, which perfectly well explains why in a circumstance exactly like this one, where impeachment's occurring late in an officer's term and has begun while they're in office and has completed its house process while the person's in office and it goes for the trial, this does not become moot at that point. There's a critical lasting issue that would be quite odd to imagine that what the drafters or ratifiers or the original public thought it all meant was that, oh shoot, ran out of time, so much for being able to disqualify that person forever. But it's worse than that, right? Because you're just focused on, obviously, um, the case at bar, which is at the end of a term. Imagine the officer who resigns um, five minutes before the Senate is supposed to vote on his removal. Yeah, that's a a piercingly clear example, hypothetical, that shows the the absurdity of this. Oh, looks like I'm going to lose. So I think I resign and I cannot be barred from running again next time. And so so Uh what what Ludwig and all these arguments completely undersell is that disqualification was a separate part of this, that it was not just incident to removal, but it was actually a secondary punishment. The Senate has always understood it thus. And what do I mean by that? When the Senate actually votes to remove an officer, Bobby, they take a second vote if they convict, right? It's It's not if you're removed, then you're disqualified. Rather, of the eight officers who have been removed by the Senate in American history. There are eight. I, I, I ran this all down today. Um, and they're all, by the way, federal judges. Um, of the eight Including Judge judges. Nixon, which has given rise to endless confusion that people that are being slaughtered. Oh, so I, wait. I, oh, I, oh, I've got, hey, I've got, I've got, so that's my other criticism of Ludwig, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> oh, don't, um, tell me, don't tell me it gets that wrong. Oh, yeah, no, we, we get to Walter Nixon. So oh, of, the eight, of the eight federal officers who have been successfully impeached and removed by the Senate, Bobby, the Senate only disqualified three of them, um, which I think drives home the point that disqualification is not automatic, that it's a separate process. And here's the best part. On this view, right, on this objection, the Senate has no power to disqualify because once it votes to convict, the guy is no longer in office. Ah, good point. If you if you don't sequence the two votes right, you lose the ability to do it. Look, I, I think it's clear. Like, I, I, don't well, I, got one more argument. I don't think the argument going the other way has any legs to it at all. Siri, Siri, Siri just had to, Siri had to weigh in. Um, I've got one more argument, which is historical practice. So the very first, I, I realize that you are, you, I'm, I'm arguing to, to the to the choir, but I just, I want to lay this all out because you know Ludig has some cred, and so people are going to take him seriously. Um, so the first ever impeachment was actually of a senator. It was of Senator William Blount, um, and Blount had actually, you know, he was no longer in office when he was impeached. Um, and so there was an issue about that. Um, the House voted to impeach him. The Senate did not remove him, but only because the Senate thought the impeachment power did not extend to senators, not because it didn't think it extended to former officers. And I can do you one better. Then there's Secretary of War William Belknap in 1876 in the so-called trading post scandal, which those who are grant aficionados will know well. Um, Belknap is the is by far one of the guiltiest parties. Um, and right before the House is supposed to vote to impeach him, Bobby, he runs to Grant and begs Grant to let him resign so that he can avoid impeachment. And he resigns, and the House impeaches him anyway. There you go. Uh, and then the Senate votes. And, they, and th- there's a procedural motion in the Senate to hold 
that the Senate lacks jurisdiction because he's no longer in office. And the Senate votes, I think it's 37 to 25 or something like that, that no, they do have the power to, 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 to continue with the trial. Now, he's ultimately acquitted. A majority votes to convict him, but not the two-thirds majority. And some of the senators who voted to acquit him said they did so because they didn't think that they should convict someone who is no longer in office. But the Senate as a body, Bobby, held that it has the power to remove people who are no longer in office. And and I just for the disqualification power to have any legs, that has to be the correct interpretation of the Constitution. That's that's exactly right. So I, th- I think that uh, this is a good example of how running through a variety of different methods. And so there you just gave us some powerful practical precedent. Uh, running through a variety of methods – and when they all start aligning in the same direction, and, and then you take the weight of that and you compare it to what the arguments are on the other side. And, you know, there's there's this sort of a, a sort of superficially cute logic to reading just the Article 2 language, but it pales in comparison to the strength of this argument. So, Steve, I think... Uh, Wait, I got one more. I'm sorry. I'm not done. There's more. Keep, keep going. So, Luther's op-ed acknowledges some of this, not all of it, and says... But if it's a close enough question, of course it will go to the Supreme Court. And that, no, my friends, no, it won't. And that, my friends, is where I absolutely get off the boat because I have taught many, many times Chief Justice Rehnquist's majority opinion in not Richard Nixon versus the United States in the Walter Nixon case Walter. in 1993, when a majority of the court holds that for exactly this reason impeachments are not justiciable, meaning, you know, uh, someone who is impeached cannot repair to the courts for a remedy, Bobby, unless the Senate runs afoul of one of the three, right, procedural requirements in the Constitution, that the senators be on oath, that the conviction be by the concurrence of two-thirds of the members who are present, and that in the case of the president, the chief justice presides. Unless you unless you are violating one of those three procedures, Nixon stands to the proposition that none of these disputes are justiciable. Yep. So it'll be interesting to see if because of the timing, it'll it'll and I think it is going to come to this, right? It's going to come to the Senate, and there will be those arguing that the whole thing is moot. And I hope that uh, people can understand that by far the better argument. And let me underscore this: using the methods of interpretation most associated with conservatism, um, those methods point in the direction of rejecting Ludic's position in this case, which is rather ironic. Um, all right. Is there anything more to say about it than that? <sighs> well, I get, we need to observe, because I don't think we said it, that a lot of people are all at Twitter because McConnell has let it be known that yeah. he, may, he may be open to this. It's not, it's not hard to unpack that story. Um, McConnell has effectively lost power going forward in the Senate. And it's clear, it was beginning to look clear that it was only going to be worse over time if this madness continued to be tolerated in the GOP. And now in the aftermath of the unbelievably toxic events of January 6th, it looks like McConnell's made the judgment that it is time at last. And to that, I'll say, uh, never too late. Sure wish it was sooner. Uh, Never too late to realize that you cannot continue to tolerate this person. So maybe he's beginning to send up the, uh, the, the flags to indicate that there just might maybe be enough votes to convict in the Senate after all. I mean, we'll see. These things can have a quick way of turning, especially if the leader of your caucus suddenly says, yeah, maybe we should do this. 
I also wonder, I mean, some folks have suggested this online. I wonder if there's also, to some degree, Trump has lost his bully pulpit, right? I mean, he between can't his, his, he's, he's right. been disarmed a little bit. I mean, not a little bit. I mean, right? He's off Twitter. He's off Facebook. He's off Parler. He's off Instagram. I mean, I think if he had a, a, a Google Photos account, that would be, I mean, like, it's just. By the way, you, know. you could really, so today was, I think, the first day where you could begin to see the real effect. And there's this powerful sense of how things could have been had he not had the direct fraud magnifier that he had all these years. Uh, when his positions and statements have to get out there for most people to hear about them via the lens of people who are in a position to say, like, well, by the way, this is totally not true, but here's what he said. Um it's different. So I, I realize that there's, I guess, no world in which from the very beginning uh, he's deplatformed, um, nor should there have been, I suppose. It'd be nice, but... Uh, but there but there is a larger conversation that I'm not nearly smart enough to have about these kinds of platforms and the damage they cause. And, and you know, I am... I, I would encourage folks, right... I, Twitter wrote, I thought, a very thoughtful memo about why they were permanently suspending his account on Friday night. I would really encourage folks to read the memo and not just people reacting to the memo, because I actually think it's a lot narrower and more specific um, than you might think. Um, yeah, for sure. It was it but, was in the nature of terms of service and specifically about in, incitement, et cetera. And, and, and I, am, I am not at all surprised that all of these conservatives are all of a sudden horrified at what happens on the free market and demanding that the government step in to regulate. <laughs> That's been a fun little thing to see. Like, yeah. I, I'm usually a free market capitalist, but dot, 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 <laughs> to which my response is, yeah. So speaking of things that got attention today, I watched every word of the presentation by, I want to get the names exactly right, because it was it was uh, Stephen uh, D'Antuano. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but he's the FBI assistant director in charge. So he's, he's uh, part of Chris Ray's team and the acting U.S. attorney for D.C., uh, Mike Sherwin. And Steve, it was the most comforting and hardening thing to see, especially, they, they were both great, uh, but it was mostly Sherwin. If what many of us want to see right now is strong, unconditional assertions that they recognize the magnitude of the danger that these violent insurgents pose, and they're going to bring the full power of law enforcement to bear on finding those people who have committed crimes, both at the, the simple level of trespass to federal property and going up the scale as as Sherwin said, to seditious conspiracy, and that all the resources appropriate to that are being marshaled en masse towards that. Boy, he really delivered on this, I thought. So I, I want to mention some highlights for anyone who didn't get the chance to just watch the whole thing. He said a lot of interesting things. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow here from a, actually a, a Twitter thread, but I kind of called out the things that stood out. First of all, there was a general theme of massive law enforcement investigative and federal prosecutor uh, grand jury investigative support capabilities. Um, the number of persons charged currently at the 70-ish range is going to, quote, inc geometrically increase into the hundreds. Um, he went out of his way to say something you and I said in our emergency pod on the night of the 6th, which is that you can't 
you can't characterize the law enforcement effort. You shouldn't characterize it based on the somewhat uh, pedestrian initial wave of charges where you're seeing a lot of um, you know, theft or destruction to government property type charges. As Mike Sherwin underscored, the way things happen in a circumstance like this is you find the simplest, clearest available charge to, to be the basis for the criminal complaint that allows you to arrest and incapacitate the individual. And in the meantime, the grand jury gets going in high gear. And he said the DC grand jury, the federal grand jury in DC, he says is booked solid, just prosecutor after prosecutor going in there, um, presenting serious felony charges and using the machinery to do the investigative work grand juries make possible. Um, He specified that we are likely to see charges for felony murder no doubt for the death of Officer, Officer Sicknick. Um, he talked about theft of national defense information charges. Now, that's interesting, Steve. That makes sense only if we assume that there's reason to believe that amidst the, the breaking into various offices in some chamber or other, national defense information was accessed and taken by those uh, rampaging through the building raises a very interesting question about whether that's sort of more on the... Uh, you know, secret, but not, you know, SCI level information? Or are we talking about the possibility that something extremely carefully planned went on amidst all that chaos? No reason yet to think that somebody took advantage of this to go in knowingly to certain places, grabbing a safe and somehow getting a hold of it and getting it out. But it's just, it really struck me that they're talking about uh, theft of national defense information. So a classified information type of charge. Um, And then the thing that a lot of people noticed, quote, looking at significant felony cases tied to sedition and conspiracy. To me, this, and he had a separate reference later to, uh, there was a sort of a fumbled way he said it, but he referred to seditious conspiracy. So they are absolutely looking at 18 U.S. Code Section 2384, the seditious conspiracy charge, which we talked about in our last show, how clearly predicated it is, at least in terms of the events that occurred, unless you think that nobody orchestrated that and it all happened spontaneously. Obviously, that's not the case. Obviously, they have their eyes on some number of ringleaders who planned. It's it's just easy to picture how eventually there will be indictments of people from these, these militia movements or otherwise who are coordinating. They'll have social media or other communications. They'll be in the midst of gathering right now through the grand jury and through other tools. Um, and they're going to show that this was a combination both of people who were taking part of this in the spur of the moment and a lot of people who planned and executed this as an armed force operation, I think. Um, and then separately, weapons offenses, especially the two pipe bombs, one at the DNC, one at the RNC. He emphasized the uh, according to ATF, these were real explosives with real timers, and they don't yet know why they hadn't gone off when they were disarmed. I think we were possibly extremely lucky in that respect. And then he emphasized as well, um, there will be lots of charges for assault and battery, both targeting uh, law enforcement officers and journalists. And he went out of his way to emphasize how many journalists were targeted specifically as journalists by the crowd, some physically assaulted uh, severely, and definitely, as we know, the officers in many cases. He referred to it as open combat, that there was egregious conduct. People are going to be shocked, he said, when some of that conduct comes to light. And I don't know if he's talking about stuff that most of us have seen on the video, or if there's even more coming out that wasn't captured on video. 
there's a tendency to assume that we've seen it all. Why should we assume that? Yes, there was a lot of video. There's probably much more. Um, one thing he did not say, Steve, he did not say anything one way or the other about incitement charges. And I don't expect anyone to say anything one way or the other about incitement charges um, prior to the inauguration. I'm skeptical that we're going to see any incitement charges afterwards also for reasons we talked about last time, but you never know. For now, though, the uh, the thing people need to watch for, the thing that really matters is the possibility of a wave of arrests to incapacitate organizers and other individuals who seem hell-bent on terrorism and destruction and a sad sack yet nonetheless terrifying attempted coup trying to have a part two at or before the inauguration. And I think that federal law enforcement is going to come down like a ton of bricks on these jokers in the uh, next six or seven days, uh, probably sooner rather than later in some cases. And and Steve, this all has echoes of um, what you and I used to spend loads of time talking about, counterterrorism, uh, legal policy, and the, the vexed question of how, as a law enforcement investigator, do you balance the necessity of intervening before someone can cause harm with the need to build your case appropriately, both in order to secure a proper conviction and to make sure you don't engage in what we would call a false positive, you know, going after somebody uh, who in fact was not ever going to go on to commit the harm you think of. Here, we've got a tough example of that because there's real reason to be concerned about what other madness may lie ahead in the next many days. And there's a little bit of a game of chicken implicitly taking place. If people who are up to no good uh, understand that there may be some federal law enforcement knocking on their door soon, that might move up their schedule. They might want to act on Inauguration Day, but they might feel like they got to move sooner. So um, I'm, I'm comforted to know that someone who seems as on task as Mike Sherwin is uh, in the position that he's in right now. And it sounds like the whole country from a law enforcement perspective at the federal level is being mobilized towards support of this effort. All right. So, so I agree with almost all of that. Um, I have two qualms. Um, qualm number one, why is the acting U.S. attorney and the assistant director in charge and the assistant special agent in charge, why are they the ones doing the first press briefing six days after this unprecedented attack on the Capitol? Where is the acting attorney general of the United States? Where is the FBI director? Um, seems to me that you are sending a message, even unintentionally, by putting on stage people nobody has ever heard of who are that far down the totem pole. So that's my, my first reaction. Um, my second is, I don't doubt for a minute that the FBI, the Justice Department, all the relevant law enforcement organizations are all in on tracking down anyone and everyone to whom they can attach charges arising out of last Wednesday. Um, you know, whether that's all sort of for noble reasons or whether some of that's to, you know, sort of try to make up for the intelligence failures, I leave for another day. My question is, what are we doing now? Right. I mean, I, I realize you're not going to have a press conference on like, here's how we're planning to prevent this from happening on. Right. But, um, you know, insofar as I can gather from social media, um, folks are planning an even more aggressive effort on Inauguration Day. And there are efforts afoot to, to have similar protests in all 50 state capitals um, between now and Inauguration Day. And my question is, you know, where is the leadership to give me any confidence that the federal government is taking that seriously and that they're actually going to be ready the next time and that what appear to be more than just negligent failures on the part of the federal government last Wednesday aren't going to be repeated. Um, 
And I just, I, nothing in today's press conference gave me any um, warm fuzzies about that, not, not least of all because of who they sent out there to do the press conference. So it's, it's very interesting um, to ponder. I, I agree with you to the extent that it, it's clearly curious not to have the people at the very top of the chain very loudly. So compare this to the moments after 9-11. Of course, you have the most senior officials constantly um, in front of the camera. Now, we, obviously, we don't expect the White House to be doing that because they're part of the problem here. But um, why not, Chris Ray? Interesting question. Is it possible that Chris himself thinks that the best way to support the investigation, given Trump's existing animosity towards him, remember, he was very close to firing Chris Ray originally. And, you know, God knows what kind of trouble could be caused if he's removed in somehow, some way, uh, Trump interferes with what FBI is doing. So All I, the more, no, then, then force it, and then really, for, and and then you really put, then you force Pence to act. I mean, if Trump fires the FBI director for having the temerity to go on national television and tell the American people what's actually happening, like this is not a moment to cower, and this is not a moment to kowtow. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I think from Chris Ray's perspective, uh, look, kowtow is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Chris Ray wanting to do the right thing and, th- and making the judgment that the best way in the eight-day critical period we've entered into to enable FBI to function is to not put himself out there. Of course, I'm just speculating. I have no idea if that's what he said. But let me does have some statements. Like I just did a quick search. Um, he's got a, a statement. Uh, it's his name, not just uh, Sherwin. It's not the same thing as appearing at the presser. I get that. He has not done a presser. He's not made himself visible. Same with DOJ's acting attorney general. Uh, But he's not – I don't want listeners to think that he's gone radio silent and is omitting himself from all this because he is is being quoted. He is speaking about these things and saying the right things about them. It's curious, no doubt. I think the best way to understand it, since there's no reason to think Chris Ray – is in the bag for Trump in the slightest way. He's clearly on Trump's enemies list. His silence is either a poorly judged or perhaps painfully smartly judged decision that this is the best way to let FBI do what it needs to do. I hope that's right. I am not at the moment feeling especially confident. Um, and this reminds me, by the way, we have... I. I we were trying to figure out what we were going to talk about before the yeah, show. This leads to DHS, right? This leads to, I, I, I totally forgot about <laughs> DHS. And how could I have forgotten about my buddy, Chad Wolf? Deja vu all over again, Steve. So For the so, third time. So in the wake of yet another court saying, you're not really the acting Homeland Security Secretary, he finally said, I'm out. All right. You no, won't no, have no, me no. to kick it around is, anymore. Oh, Bobby, it is so much worse than that. Oh my gosh, it is so much worse than that. Okay, right, so tell tell the latest. So let's start with what what Chad Wolf has said. So Chad Wolf, um, whose nomination was who? Uh, so let's, let's back up. Chad Wolf has been serving as the acting. Well, Chad Wolf has claimed to be yeah. the acting Secretary of Homeland Security um, for quite a while. I think almost a year. Is that right? Maybe even longer. I've I've lost track. It's been a while. Uh, it's been a while um, because we have not had a Senate confirmed Secretary of Homeland Security for 643 days um, since April 10th, 2019. But, you know, why is that important? Who needs someone in, to run that agency? Um, we have talked before at length about why Wolf's initial appointment as acting secretary was almost certainly unlawful, as multiple district courts have concluded. Um, we have talked about DHS's obnoxious response when GAO reached the same conclusion back in August and DHS was like, what are you talking about? Um, but Bobby, it gets so much better. 
So um, late uh, last year, Trump nominated Trump finally nominated Wolf to become the actual Secretary of DHS, even though no one really expected that his nomination was ever going to go anywhere. Um, and I think the thinking was that they were looking for some way to ensure that all the stuff that he did while arguably serving unlawfully as acting secretary could be ratified before the end of the administration. And the easiest way to do that would be to get him confirmed and then just redo all of it, right? Okay, so they nominated him. But then we got to January 3rd, and January 3rd was the end of the 116th Congress, and so Wolf's nomination expired. Now, at that point, they could have done nothing, and Wolf still would have been maybe illegally serving as the acting secretary, but all would have been fine. But you know what they did, Bobby? They resubmitted the nomination. And this is when things get amazing. So Wednesday night, they withdrew the nomination and they lied through their teeth about why, Um, right? So the story they told was that they withdrew the nomination because it had become clear that he wasn't going to get a confirmation hearing. Okay, (laughs) that had been clear since September, um, it's pretty clear when there's only a few weeks left in the uh, lame duck term. Right. Yeah, the real know. reason why they did it was almost certainly because he said there's something he wouldn't do or there's something he said sometime on Wednesday that led the White House at 8.40 p.m. Wednesday night to withdraw his nomination. Now, he made a public statement Thursday, and it was only after that that the news came out that his nomination was withdrawn. Folks wrongfully thought it was in response to the public statement. No, it was in response to something that happened on Wednesday. But here's where this gets amazing. Bobby, have you ever heard of Section 749 of the 2009 Omnibus Appropriations Act? You know, I've got it right here somewhere, but I can't find it. Can you I, I want to read it. I have to read this to you. And as I'm reading this to you, think Chad Wolf. Effective January 20th, 2009, and for each fiscal year thereafter, no part of any appropriation may be used for the payment of services to any individual carrying out the responsibilities of any position requiring Senate advice and consent in an acting or temporary capacity after, Bobby, wait for it, the second submission of a nomination for that individual to that position has been withdrawn or returned to the president. God, so, I'm out of here because I can't be paid. Um, so Wolf then apparently took the position that, well, he just will work the last, you know, 14 days of his term for no pay. But there's a pesky little statute called the Anti-Deficiency That's Act right. that makes right. that illegal. And so Wolf sent this note yesterday that's like, guys, I fought the good fight, but all these courts have said, you know, you're, maybe you're not in there legally, and I just I want to I don't want to leave under a cloud, so I'm resigning as acting secretary effective at 11:59 tonight. Here's my reaction: No, dude, you stop being the acting secretary the moment the White House withdrew your second nomination. That's right. And I don't care what you say. Like I don't think you were the acting secretary even before that, but at the very latest. You have not been the acting secretary since last Wednesday. So do you think he understood that and was just putting out a cover story? So maybe Chad Mazel, his, his act, his, sorry, not acting, his official performing the duties of the general counsel. I'd say senior uh, so official, but he's more like somebody else. Yeah. Maybe, so, a, maybe a White House counsel's office explained it to him. Who knows? 
All I know is, like, is there any better way for the Chad Wolf saga to end than for Wolf to claim he's resigning when, in fact, the White House actually totally screwed him by withdrawing his nomination and failed to notice that there's this obscure appropriation statute that means that that withdrawal was conclusive of his ability to continue serving in the office? Everyone who lies down with the Trump administration, with Gets very dirty. few exceptions, comes up real dirty. All right, um, so... This, this, of course, by the way, it's very funny to read the stories about Mike Pence being mad, feeling betrayed by Donald Trump on the six. <laughs> you can't possibly right. be surprised. Or expect him. Yeah. Um, so let's note that the, uh, the we the now actual. actually have clarity at DHS, which is the irony of it all. It's kind of it came clean right here at the end, just in time, perhaps. So, so I think even I, who have been quite critical of all of this, happily agree that the lawful acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security is Pete Gaynor. In his capacity as FEMA director. Um, The real question is whether Gaynor is going to now do what they clearly had been hoping they'd be able to maneuver Wolf into doing, which is ratify all of the controversial stuff Wolf did when he was arguably serving unlawfully as acting secretary. I believe he's already made a statement that's in the news today that he's not down with that. That he's not going to try. I don't know how credible that is, but I saw at least one report that looked – it looked plausible to me that he was saying that, no, that's not, that's not on my agenda. We got eight days and we have a major net set of national security events. Gainer, Gainer, people are wondering like, so who, who's this guy? Is it who's this guy? He, I think 26 years in the Marine Corps, he's a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel who's, whose post-Marine career has been emergency management really in Rhode Island. And then uh, as part of FEMA, he's been the Senate confirmed FEMA director for a little while now. Um, I think that as far as these things go in the Trump administration, this is about as good as you could want insofar as DHS matters for this eight-day final stage of the roller coaster. And it does matter. In uh, It's not the only agency that matters, but it does matter a lot. Um, this seems like somebody who I think we can trust within reasonable bounds is got the, the country and the Constitution, not Donald J. Trump as his client. And he's, I think, going to probably discharge DHS's roles quite appropriately in that respect as we come up. He's certainly better than Chad. Yeah, this. Uh, <laughs> is that is that a He's certainly better than Chad. He's he's better than Chad. You know, I don't like this as a show title. It's funny, but but it makes it sound like Peter Gaynor is actually pretty bad. I, I don't like the implication. I actually think he's probably he deserves right, um, better. Bye, bye bye, Chad. That's our current. Contender, Chad, 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 Chad hangs no more. No more hanging, Chad. No more hanging, Chad. Uh, you know the hanging, the hanging connotation. Is, yeah, not 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 a good moment for that one. Um, yeah, the uh, yeah the you know to borrow a phrase, it takes a title to beat a title. So I guess we got bye bye, Chad. Or who's in right, charge? Um, one other big topic we want before before I sort of uh, uh, blindside you with Pompeo's remarks on Iran. We do. We've gotten a number of requests to talk about Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, and I feel like yeah, we ought to yeah. we ought to say a word or two. All right. Um, what to say? So, Section Three. Let me pull it up so that we can actually start by talking about what it says. Um, so, Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment is this wonderful provision. You know, the Fourteenth Amendment is this remarkable, important. Like, I mean, Bobby, probably like among the more important constitutional provisions there is. Um, but we spend most of our time in constitutional law classes talking about only two of its five sections, right? We talk about section one, which is where you get the citizenship clause, the due process clause, the equal protection clause, the privilege of immunities clause, 
We talked about Section 5, right, which is Congress's power to enforce the 14th Amendment. We tend not to talk about Sections 2, 3, and 4. Um, section 2 is about apportionment. Section 4 is about uh, public debts. Um, and actually, the debt ceiling is what the one time we talk about Section 4. But then there's Section 3. Um, and I want to read Section 3. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So folks have been asking two questions. One, does Section 3 apply to Trump? Two, does Section 3 apply to members of Congress who could be uh, um, assigned at least some responsibility for the events of last Wednesday? Uh, Bobby, go. <laughs> uh, so, first of all, the the operative phrasing there. Let me let me actually pull that up in front of me as well. Sorry, I threw you under the bus there. No, no. The triggers the trigger says shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. We talked about this the other night. Um, even if you frame, even if the operative phrase said incitement. So I don't think anyone's going to claim that any member of Congress, I don't, I don't think, maybe I'll be surprised, that any member of Congress is actually involved in planning or orchestrating events. The claim is always that, A, you made this possible by, by supporting the lies about the election and, and, and egging people on. And insofar as that's the claim, it's an incitement claim. I'm not sure that if you, since the phrase here in Section 3 is not incitement to insurrection or rebellion, I don't know that you can actually... Uh, predicate a Section Three argument on uh, that sort of logic. I'm, not, I'm just not sure it's a fit. Now you might try to say, like, no, uh, inciting insurrection is part and parcel of insurrection. Inciting rebellion is part and parcel of rebellion. It's an included concept, or it's a predicate act that can count as uh, maybe so. I, as I said the other night on our show, as horrific and as ill-intentioned as I think it was, it's very hard to make the argument that you actually have what legally qualifies as incitement to insurrection or rebellion in, in the things that say Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley were doing. To be clear, they are morally responsible in a significant way by creating the, the swamp of lies that became the fever dreams of these people who thought, some of whom thought they were really uh, responding to a state of affairs that was as those people like Trump had said. I don't know if that gets you the ability to say that – I don't think it gets you the ability to say that Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley uh, were engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Um, maybe the better argument is to turn away from incitement and to say, look, as, as I myself said earlier in the show, set aside incitement and the in attack on the Capitol. Forget that. Just focus on what – these are two people who know better. There's, you'll never convince me that Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley don't know. That in fact, all those Georgia votes, as Chris as uh, Chris Krebs has has documented endlessly, they were all backed by paper trail. There's paper proof that's been triple checked now. Um, they know it's not true, and yet they still claim otherwise. And I'd want to go parse their statements to see if you can catch them. Do they do they definitely avoid saying, "Well, I believe it's all a fraud"? Too do they do what Donald Trump did? Um, so I think they're they're probably outside the scope of this. Donald Trump, however, 
clearly and repeatedly and with increasing boldness does try to perpetrate this coup by fraudulent deception uh, repeated again and again. At some point, it's clearly not the sort of thing that the drafters during Reconstruction had in mind by looking back to the Civil War, where they literally had uh, open, uh, large-scale armed conflict. But can you argue this is close enough? Steve, am I wrong to feel like this is a pretty far on the edge case of the concepts of insurrection or rebellion and that those terms really don't quite fit the morally monstrous and otherwise problematic thing that Donald Trump is doing? I mean, I think it's the aid and comfort provision. That's that's where we get that's where things get interesting. And of course, it's Congress's prerogative to define what that means. Um, I would just say this. I have a hard time with the notion that this provision is self-executing, um, right? And the notion that like someone is automatically now disqualified, as opposed to as Congress often enforced it after the Civil War, Congress declines to seat someone who in who in Congress's view meets those criteria. What I would much prefer is for Congress to utilize its Section 5 power, right, to pass legislation to enforce the entire article, um, to operationalize Section 3 and to put more meat on the bone, to explain exactly who it applies to and when, to explain exactly what the procedure is for determining that someone meets the criteria, and, you know, to actually, so, so that we're not just sort of left wondering, like, well, what is this and how is it enforced? I just, I just it doesn't, like... I understand why people are gravitating toward it. It just doesn't fit right to me compared yeah. to the, you know, expulsion and impeachment and for the president, 25th Amendment remedies. Yeah, impeachment's clearly the thing that's most on point it, to our discussions previously. I think that the aid and comfort language, I can see the argument working, if it works at all, maybe this way, that giving his encouragement beforehand, which is pretty weak sauce, but maybe more potently, I believe he had a tweet afterwards, after it was clear what had happened, the violence. Oh, no, the, the, six o'clock, the 6.01 p.m. tweet is by far to me the smoking gun. So that the, I think that you could argue, that, so you have to have an act that constitutes giving aid and comfort, and you have to have enemies to be the objects of that comfort, enemies being people who are engaged in force against the government of the United States. Some number of those people at the Capitol were using force against the Constitution and the government of the United States. They were enemies, unless you're going to read some sort of, well, it, well, you couldn't possibly read into this some sort of, well, it doesn't apply to Americans because this was written in response to the Civil War. So clearly it does. So, yeah, I think you've got the object in those people. And insofar as, so the question then becomes, could his 601 tweet, which Steve, can you paraphrase it? I don't have it in front of me. My recollection is that he basically said, like, I, I, I'm going to try to pull this I, up. I've got it. I've got it. Give me a second to pull it up. Okay. Here's so where I'm going is the, the million-dollar question for Section 3 is, does that tweet in particular with his public quasi-wink endorsement of what had just happened, does that constitute giving aid and comfort to the armed enemies of the United States? Maybe so. so. Keep in mind, this is six o'clock, right? So this is while there, this is before like the all clear has been given. This is while there are still people in the Capitol who shouldn't be, right? But when, when there's enough known, when we know that someone's died, when we know, right? Yeah. This is what the president said. These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. 
remember this day forever. This would be as if James Buchanan or, or some just pick pick an official who hadn't yet resigned their commission in 1861 and after the first opening shot said you know after after uh you know Fort Sumter says look this is what happens when when you trample on states rights and try to tell the southern states how to live their lives um you know, Go in peace. militia of, of South Carolina, you know, nice work. Uh, try not, you know, go home in peace now. Uh, that remember this day forever. Yeah, this, yeah, and, and remember this glorious day forever is practically what he's implying. So, yeah, I think I'm interested in the argument that that tweet is giving aid or comfort to the enemies of the United States and the Constitution of the United States. Yep. You persuaded me. But I still think we need operation to operationalize it. Got to operationalize it. That's true, and that's what a, what a mess that way lies. But again, I think all that just goes back to our earlier point that you don't need to go down this pathway. The remedy that is best suited to this is to complete the trial of the soon to be completed article of impeachment, and then obviously not to remove him from office; he'll be out, but to disqualify him permanently from office. That makes so much more sense. Ugh, leaves a bad taste in my mouth. All right, let's talk about Mike Pompeo. Um, so I, I pulled up, I pulled up the Times article. Uh, Lord Jakes, Eric Schmidt, Julian Barnes. So he's saying that Iran is the new base of operations for the new base of operations for Al Qaeda. Um, and there's people obviously contesting this and saying, show, show me the money on that. Um, now, you mentioned earlier, did, did he actually try to do a retrospective and say it's been this way all along, kind of reviving those sort of 2002 arguments that were used to sort of – I'm sorry, I was thinking of Iraq. Is it just sort of a repeat of that? Yeah, but in the speech – so the line that was quoted by the BBC at least in the speech, and I just – I haven't had time today to really run this down, but by um, a, a couple of BBC reporters is that – Iran is now home for Al-Qaeda and that Tehran, quote, was involved, unquote, in the September 11th attacks, um, which, I mean, come on, man. Like, give me a break. This is this is 2002 stuff. Um, do you think what he's trying to say is that the guy – there was the guy that was assassinated, the Al-Qaeda operative who was assassinated – the number three operational leader guy, Al-Mazri, who was, you know, arguably involved in, in was definitely involved in Al-Qaeda at that time in 9-11, is the idea to say like, well, he's been in Iran, so there's like retrospective taint, or is he really trying to claim that the government of Iran actually had some sort of meaningful hand in it as some sort of bizarre way? I know, I know people will jump on this and say like, oh my God, it's a prelude to invoking the 2001 AUMF for a last week in office uh, war with Iran. Um, I don't think, I don't think that's the game here. If this is what he's saying, um, because you have an existing authority under the 2002 Iraq AUMF, which has much less comical, still debatable, but much less comical connections to Iran because Iran is insofar as you believe as the Obama administration had believed, and then the Trump administration has believed the O2 AUMF applies as to the U.S. forces that are still present in Iraq. Um, 
we know that the government will take the position that insofar as Iran is using force against U.S. personnel or has been using force against U.S. personnel in Iraq, the O2 AMF and self-defense concepts predicated on top of that give you a basis for responding. I just don't think they would need to cook up a crazy 2001 AUMF theory. I think this is more about fever dreams about, you know, it's sort of sort of like, aha, Al-Qaeda and North Korea working together, um, you know, Harold and Kumar style combining of things, combined with with a nice dash of, in fact, some Al-Qaeda key personnel, in fact, being in Iran, which is a different thing from saying that Iran is involved in the 9-11 attacks. Um, does that sound right to you that it's not, it doesn't portend, it's not like the key that legally unlocks use of force authority for Iran? Y'all can't see him. He's shaking his head. Steve's frustrated too much to speak, but I can see him. He's shaking his head. I just I didn't I, know we keep the Zoom window open so we could see each other while we do this. So I mean, I've I've been I've been um, a broken record about the unconscionable length of the lame duck period in our constitutional democracy, um, which is eleven weeks, um, and even that is a dramatic improvement over what it was in the original. In the original constitution, it was seventeen weeks. Um, I, the amount of just crap. That I mean, wholly apart from the insurrection and wholly apart from like trying to overturn the results of the election, even if we could put that aside, which, oh, by the way, how can we put that aside? Um, the amount of nasty, like just n- dumb, you know, uh, backwards moving stuff that the Trump administration is doing on the way out for no other reason than because they're on the way out and they want to cause mischief is just, I mean, it's not surprising, but it's just, I mean, we designated Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism. I mean, like, you know, there's all this stuff that's like usually sophisticated, complicated, really nuanced stuff that now we're just doing because, hey, let's have fun on the last, you know, it's senioritis. Let's go on a, let's go on a trip. Right. It's, 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 we've talked about this before. It's like, it's the last night of high school. Do all those things you always wanted to do. Pompeo's effort to go on a trip to Europe got brutally rebuffed by the Europeans who were like, fuck no. That was that was pretty sudden. You know, was it uh, Luxembourg? Did. Luxembourg told him to get lost. Um, by the way, what does it say about the state of U.S. power when Luxembourg can tell the Secretary of State of the United States to get lost? Well, I, I don't find it at all surprising. I, I certainly don't view that as showing like, ah, America has no weight in the world anymore. Uh, it'll be dead different in a month. A month from now, it won't be like that at all. This is specifically, uh, I, I'm not saying, I can almost I can almost hear you guys in your cars and on your headphones saying like, are you kidding? Trump has destroyed American credibility. It, true. Absolutely. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that the way Luxembourg is acting now is very specific to a secretary of state who they cannot stand for good reason, who's got eight days left in office. He doesn't matter anymore. Um, it's specific to him. Uh, the madness over the next eight days, Steve, sort of, we'll probably record again right before it all goes down. And God forbid we may have to have an emergency pod when it does go down on the 8th. Um, what do you see as the, the most important things for people to be watching for from a national security perspective over these final eight days? What? Self, self-pardon self of the president. And God, for, oh, we should mention this. There's talk of pardoning convicted war criminal, uh, what's the guy's name? Bales. Robert Bales? Yeah, Robert Bales. Yeah, um, who's convicted of of um, you know first degree murder of all these civilians? Um, so look out for that. Look out for Trump pardoning himself, uh, and then 
I, I don't think we're going to see a Trump pardon for the Capitol uh, invasion, like en masse or in particular cases. Although I suppose if the impeachment starts, uh, you know, you never know what kind of acting out might happen. Um, the possibility that the president with the stroke of a pen before he's out of office could wipe away all criminal liability for all those people that Mike Sherwin's going after. That is a reason to get this job done. Why it matters every day that he's still in there. I, I agree. Although that's, I mean, that's a scandal. That's not a national security crisis. The crisis to me is if we really do see a, a, a raft of attacks on state capitals in the days to come, if we really do see a violent mob descending on Washington on the 20th, and if we see efforts by this White House to soft pedal the federal response, that's the crisis yep. to me. Yeah, um, I mean, that's that's Lincoln sneaking into Washington, right, in February of 1861, because he was worried about being assassinated on the route, you know, between sure. Springfield and D.C., with uh, with National Guard presence in D.C., it's already been, you know, the national security event status was already there for the inauguration. They've already attached it, I believe, effective immediately or at least effective way in advance. Uh, authority for the National Guard to be armed has been provided. I don't think I have no doubt there could be sporadic this or that because there's always the possibility, no matter how secure your event is uh, for small individuals here and there to cause mayhem. Um, but I don't think we are in real danger of having the same madness unfold on the inauguration. I think you're right to say that, uh, you know, the, so the bad actors are going to look for the softer targets. And what are the softer targets? State capitals or other icons of national significance. Um, again, look, this is terrorism. And specifically with terrorism, you think about people using violence for uh, propagandistic purposes and symbolic purposes. So I think we need to be very concerned the closer we get to the inauguration immediately before and immediately after being the, the hottest moments uh, about things away from the inauguration. We need to properly guard the inauguration, but I'm very concerned about terrorism occurring in other locations. Um, it, we should also note, because we never do this because it's just so obvious, but it, we talk about you know what are the national security concerns more than 4,000 people are dying every day in this country from COVID-19. Um, we are rapidly, I mean, terrifyingly rapidly sliding down the roller coaster, approaching the 400,000 dead mark. We will easily cross half a million Americans dead uh, in less than a year's or in about a year's time. That's the biggest fiasco of them all. There's True a title for you, the biggest fiasco of them all. I like that. Um, and and if I and if I if I might say so, yet another ground on which Trump should have been impeached. But concur, concur. Oh, Bobby, are, are we are we almost out of this? Yes, yes. Look, I I, I, I you need know that I don't like uh, dwelling on the negative. Um, I was really hard and just watching the institutions of the FBI and the justice department expressed through those guys today, talking about what they're going to do. Um, I'm hardened by those who've gotten the shots already. I'm hardened by the prospect of vaccine deliveries continuing to accelerate. I'm, I'm hardened by the, the return of adults in the room. I'm hardened by, by people like Liz Cheney speaking up and beginning the battle to take back the GOP to fight. This is, this is going to be 
really big and a really long and ugly battle between rule of law, the, the, the attempt by rule of law conservatives and constitutionalists to retake that party from the populist authoritarians. Um, I'm hardened by the signs of these shoots of grass coming up. And I want to encourage listeners who maybe are feeling like it just keeps getting worse. Yes, but darkest before the dawn, my friends. Darkest before the dawn. I'm heartened by the Francisco Lindor trade. <laughs> yeah. Can we please end on that note? I'm so psyched about that. Uh, it's not just because I had him on a fantasy team two years ago and it was just so cool. He's also just a fun and interesting guy. It's That was such a great sign that this new ownership really could deliver the goods. They're actually going to spend money, which is something new, which you would think a major market team would, would have no problem doing. But ever since the... The Wilpons lost all their money to Bernie Madoff. It's been a real issue. Well, you know, every, you know, the Mets have had ownership that will throw money around before. I want both. I want the open pocketbook for them, and I want them to know what they're doing when they spend it. Lindor was a, was a great, great pickup. All right. On that note, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, I really hope our next podcast is a relatively normal episode at the beginning of the Biden administration. But... Man, it's going to be a long seven days, Bobby. Word. Stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.